You're listening to What Works, the show that brings you candid conversations about what's really working to run and grow a small business today. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Today, we're kicking off a month focused on scaling up. We're examining the misconceptions, the assumptions, the biases, and of course, the many ways that small business owners today are scaling up. And no, this is not a month all about online courses or apps. If you've been thinking about how your business can have a bigger impact, serve more customers, and make you more money, but you're at a loss for how to do that without running yourself into the ground or sacrificing your values, this month is dedicated to you. And to start this month, I have a confession to make. I started a new company, a second company, and I started it with someone you know, my husband and the producer of What Works, Sean McMullen. We're approaching the first moves in this company completely differently than when I started my own business almost 11 years ago. And to sum it up, we're starting with scale in mind from the get-go. And to be honest, the idea of scaling up snuck up on me the first time around. By the time I was well on my way to scaling up in theory, I realized that my company wasn't ready to scale up in practice. My finances were a mess. My team was disorganized. There was little, if any, documentation. Important stuff fell through the cracks all the time. And getting that stuff handled, it took years. I do not want to repeat those mistakes. And since Sean was around for that cleanup job, he doesn't want to repeat them either. So Sean and I are doing things very differently this time around. In just a bit, we'll have a conversation about what scaling up means to us, why we've started this company, and how I finally convinced Sean to start a business. We're also going to talk about the nitty-gritty details of how we're starting with scale in mind. Things like process documentation, planning for future hires, pricing with labor in mind, creating scripts, anticipating training, and even considering our exit strategy. But this is just the tip of the iceberg for what we've got coming up on the podcast this month. You'll hear from Callie Willows, who scaled up with a membership site, Marie Poulin, who is intentionally choosing a path that doesn't necessarily scale, and Carol Cox, who's hiring and training coaches to help her scale her speech coaching company. You'll also hear from Katie Schultz, who challenged some personal assumptions to scale up her writer mentorship program. Deborah Junta, who scaled her company providing dance classes to schools in Chicago and beyond. And Natalie Gingrich, who's scaling up her business as a director of operations for hire by certifying other directors of operations. And I'll even talk to Susan Bowles about what's working for companies to scale their operations through software. It's a jam-packed month, and I couldn't be more excited to help you find a few new ideas for running your business more effectively and efficiently, and yes, help you scale up if that's your goal. Now, let's dive into how Sean and I are building our new company to scale from day one. So first, let's define scale for the purposes of this discussion, because there are a lot of different ways that people talk about scale when it has to do with online business. And for this scaling up month, we have a very particular definition, and it's one that I think more people need to use, if I may be so bold. And that is simply that when it comes to scale, what we're really talking about here is building a business with a capacity that goes beyond your personal 
capacity. So in other words, when we're talking about uh, building Yellow House Media with scale in mind from the get-go, we're talking about what does Yellow House Media look like when it doesn't just rely on you and me to get all the work done, right? Right. And that really can be one of the biggest challenges for small business owners is that they're so used to working within their own capacity. They're so used to even expanding their own capacity that thinking beyond their own capacity is really challenging. And I know that from personal experience, and I know you know that from personal experience, even if it's not in the small business realm. And I think one of the things that we really wanted to focus on with this business is yeah, okay, it's a second company. And yeah, okay, that means that we are going to be bumping up against all sorts of ceilings in terms of our time and our energy, at least at the the beginning. But we have a vision for being able to run both companies while still enjoying a really comfortable, really easeful, really free kind of lifestyle. And I truly believe that that's possible. The next question I think that's on probably everyone's mind is, why the hell did we decide to start a second company? And The truth is that you were starting to make moves toward starting your own business um, when I think we really started to see what the potential was for a podcast production company. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I'd started doing podcast production for people beyond what works, and I was getting more requests for consultations and sort of almost business coaching from a podcast perspective, which is very intriguing to me. And I found myself running into a lot of places where I was having questions, where I was walking down the hallway, knocking on the door, Tara's office door, and being like, hey, Tara, can I ask you a question? And it just made way more sense when I have Tara McMullen down the hallway for me that we make it official. I mean, we'd already gotten married, so let's take it to the next level. I'm committed that far, right? (laughs) First, you bought a house with me. Then we got married. Now we're starting a business. It may not be. If memory serves, I'm not actually on paperwork on this house. No, which, you're not. So I, uh, <laughs> if I've got to beat a hasty tree, at least I don't have to worry about the house. Okay. <laughs> now would probably be a good time to tell everyone what exactly is Yellow House Media? So Yellow House Media is a podcast production agency and consultancy. And the opportunity we saw in the market was that there are plenty of people out there doing audio engineering, editing, production for podcasters. There are plenty of people creating show notes for podcasters. There are plenty of virtual assistants and online business managers that you can hire that do the administrative part of running a podcast. But we what we did not see anyone doing was content strategy for podcasting. And we knew that if we could combine a really strategic um, and narrative approach to content for podcasting with audio production, administration, and business strategy on top of that, that we'd have a really well-rounded service that actually provided people what they needed all in one place, as opposed to trying to string together different services and and then make the strategy up essentially as they go. I mean, for as well-established as podcasts are, the industry itself is really still in its infancy. Seth Godin just did a podcast on podcasts this week, and he uh, cited a statistic that I believe 
that podcast advertising uh, in the last year was a $500 million industry. So, okay, that's a lot of money. Uh, but as he put it, that's a lot of money until you consider that that's only a third of the amount of money that was spent on advertising in movie theaters. And so really, the understanding the business of podcasting, understanding what goes into a good podcast, understanding what people actually want to listen to, that no one's figured that out yet. And we think we have a pretty good approach. Um, the clients that we've worked with so far on it think we have a pretty good approach. Um, and so, you know, really, this big gaping opportunity in the market was staring us down. And I got too excited about it. And I had to get on board. I had to be part of this, this podcast production business um, that we had originally sort of conceived as Sean's, um, but I needed a piece of it. Mm -hmm. I, I've been surprised at how much of a demand there is for it. I did not really appreciate how much of a gap that there was. It is surprising me. Like I was like, surely this is an, this is something awesome. Surely there are people out there offering this. And there might be, and we haven't come across them yet. But the people we're work with that we're working with, they haven't found it yet. No. Honestly, I'd say the reasons that I went all in have less to do with you than with myself. You know, those personal challenges of deciding to commit to something, you know, always like I've been in this stuck place where I'm just sort of like on hold waiting for that really cool, really great thing that's going to come to me, that that's going to be the thing that like clicks with me and it's going to be my passion and this is what I'm going to do. Well, I'm friggin' th uh, 43 years old. And almost. Okay, I'm 42. <laughs> I'm 42 and a half. Okay. But the, there comes a time when, where it's, I don't feel like I'm settling. I feel like I am. Are you afraid that, are you afraid that other people think you're settling? I'm going to guess that there are people in my life who would think that I'm settling, mm. but they're like out there being dirty punk rockers and <laughs> eating, still eating out of dumpsters, which I respect, respect, but this is working out for me. And I decided to grab a hold of the thing in front of me and go with it and go all in and experiment and find out what doesn't work and find out what I want. Yeah. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I am quite certain that it resonates with many of our listeners who have businesses that they may not have been incredibly excited or passionate about at first, but they knew they could make money doing it and they knew they could do good work doing it. And yeah. I know you're reading Cal Newport's book right now on basically that exact subject of realizing that passion can be the thing that you're good at and that pays the bills and that you work that you that is worth it enough to you to work hard at and that over time you find your energy in that thing. Um, and I know you've had a couple of experiences even just this week where people have told you just how wonderful what you've just done for them is as you help them craft a you know a podcast content strategy. Maybe that doesn't sound super glamorous or punk rock to, to your punk rock friends, but you know, like I said to you earlier today, I, I don't think there's any world or for any person where being told how wonderful you are and how much someone appreciates you and is grateful for the work that, they've, that you've just done for them doesn't feel like a million bucks. Totally. 
and in addition to that, this week I've been thinking about, I've been thinking back to the times in my life when I've had work that I've felt really, really compelled by and work that I felt really passionate about. And these weren't things that, these weren't things that I chose. These were things that sort of, yeah. I got stuck with it, made the best of it. Not that I'm getting stuck with the yellow house, but I'm saying <laughs> it's like sometimes these things sneak up on you and yeah, instead of sitting around waiting for the next big thing to happen to you, maybe you look just right at what's right in front of you. Yeah. What your opportunities are right in front of you. Yeah. And in my case, right down the hallway. Okay, so we're going to talk about um, the specific things that we're doing in the business right now to start with scale in mind. Because like we said, um, we don't want this business to take over our lives. We don't necessarily even want to be doing this business for the rest of our lives. Uh, Just earlier today, we were talking about, you know, maybe having like a seven-year plan for this business. Um, And we're going to talk about what that looks like. And we're going to talk about what that means for how we're starting and where we see the business going in just a minute. But first, a break for our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Let's make this fall the season you embrace simplicity for yourself, your business, and your customers. Enough with all of the apps and workarounds. It's time to bring your business and your customers together in one meaningful place online. That's where Mighty Networks comes in. When you start your own Mighty Network, you're creating a home for your business and your customers away from the hustle and bustle of traditional social media and free from the convoluted workarounds of the online education and coaching space. You suddenly have one place for your customers to hang out and meet each other, one place for your online courses, programming, or content, one place for managing your payments and customer database. Pretty simple, right? Here at What Works, Mighty Networks has drastically simplified our business. Our Mighty Network has given us a way to deepen our relationship with our customers, build stronger foundations for our company, and create the potential for almost unlimited recurring revenue. Ready to simplify your business? Give Mighty Networks a try today. Start absolutely free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by the What Works Network. There's a lot of hype out there about running and growing a small business today. It's exciting, it's sexy, and the algorithms at our favorite social media sites, well, they're delivered to bring us those exciting, sexy headlines. Grow your business to seven figures in seven weeks. How to 10X your followers overnight. Why bots are the key to never having to talk to another human being again. Okay. Sure. But what's really going on here? That's the question we always come back to here at What Works. We've made it our job to provide the platform, curate the stories, and make the real connections between small business owners that allow the truth to rise to the surface. This month we're spending on scale is no exception. We're looking at the wide variety of options that you have for running your business more effectively and efficiently and scaling your capacity to make more money. Conversations like these are exactly what happens inside the What Works Network. Only instead of being on the outside listening in, you're on the inside participating in the conversation. This month, we're hosting a day-long live conversation about scaling up. It's a virtual conference featuring boots-on-the-ground experience and interactive sessions. You'll hear from Claire Pelletro on scaling up your marketing with advertising. You'll hear from Maggie Patterson on scaling a service-based business without losing the service. 
You'll hear from Natalie Gingrich about scaling your operations, and you'll hear from Christina Shawley about managing your cash flow while you scale. Personally, I cannot wait. The Scaling Up Virtual Conference is only for members of the What Works Network. If you're not a member of the What Works Network yet, now is the time to join us. We're opening the doors to new members soon. To find out when we do, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. Okay, so what are we actually doing to start this business with scale in mind? So the very, very first thing, and I think probably the biggest lesson that I've learned over the decade plus that I have now been in business for myself is to do everything like we have to do it again tomorrow. So what I mean by that is that instead of you know, reinventing the wheel every time we write a client proposal. Instead of reinventing the wheel every time we send an email in response to a request for consultation. Um, instead of reinventing the wheel every time we need to set a client up with um, a folder on Google Drive, we are thinking through what would make this easier to do again tomorrow. So Sean, can you give us maybe an example of what that actually looks like? So I'm rapidly learning how to use canned emails and templates. You know, that if we write something that's juicy, something that I'm like, okay, I, I want to, <laughs> I want to remember that and I want to reuse it. I know that I'm going to be reusing it. Well, I set myself up from the very beginning knowing that. And so I don't have to recreate that process every single time that I do it. We're looking to create things that are very repeatable. How do we go about that? Well, you know where you make sure you know you have, you have your checklist you and, your, and you know where that checklist is. You know where those things on that checklist are so that tomorrow when I'm tired and I don't really I'm not really awake yet, I can start through it and it's, I don't have to really think about it too much. Very repeatable. Yeah, exactly. So the very first time we put out the call for a potential, clients and, and made an offer, uh, we got a whole bunch of inquiries in right away, which goes to show proof of concept, first off. But second of all, um, okay, so I had five emails I needed to respond to, which I had not planned on responding to that day uh, because I was not fully in the mindset of running a second company yet. And I knew that when I opened the first email, and it was a great email, and you know, you know, the person was really excited, I sent back a response. That response became the response for the next email, and the next email after that, and the next email after that. And sure, I tweak every email that I send, and personalize I, you know, I it. personalize it exactly, and you know, thank them and all of those things. But the meat of that email is legitimately the same for every single person that's inquired because they were all inquiring about the same package, which I suppose is another way um, that we're really thinking about making it easier on ourselves when we have to do it again tomorrow instead of starting out this business and saying, hey, here's what we do. What can we do for you? We're, we're telling people, this is what we can do for you. We can sit down with you for three hours and come up with six months of content for your podcast. This is how much it costs. This is where you sign up for it. And even setting up the offer that way makes it easier for us to respond to the emails. The emails can be templated. The whole process can be templated, which means it becomes very easy to scale it. 
And with scale in mind, I would say a, right now a huge part of this for me is not just assuming that the way that we're doing it now is the way that we're going to do it next month or in six months. And so I am actively documenting things that I see that aren't working, something that I worked into my checklist that I never get to. And I am actively being aware of refining that process because in some ways this is like taking notes in some sort of college course. I'm, yeah. learning, I'm learning as I go and applying it as we go. You know, I love that example of like you're you're in your own college college level course yeah. and you're taking notes because you're learning. And I think I mean, I certainly didn't do that at the beginning. I sure I made mental notes, but it would have been a whole lot more helpful later mm -hmm. on if I would have actually taken notes on what I was doing and why. Well, and I think also giving myself giving ourselves that freedom to experiment that we can make mistakes and learn from them because we know that that's what's going to happen. And so we go into it prepared for that, expecting it, hoping for it, bringing it on, you know? Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's look at the, the second big thing that we're doing to uh, get this business started with scale in mind. And that is planning for the people that we're eventually going to hire to expand <laughs> our capacity. So Sean and I have no qualms about the fact that we want to hire people. We know we do not want to be the only people running this business. Um, and we want to be ready to hire people as quickly as possible because we anticipate at this point that demand is going to be that high and that we're going to have the opportunity to create some really pretty kick-ass jobs for people as we go. So um, on a very kind of practical note, that means already having an org chart um, with, you know, kind of seats and space saved for the people that we want to invite into the organization sometime very, very soon. Um, and taking notes in as we document to see where, knowing now where I would hypothetically want such and such a task to fall into that chart. Exactly. Um, but the other thing that we're doing, which I'm actually really excited about, is actually scripting out the process that we follow with with clients. So like I just mentioned that we have this, this three hour kind of intensive podcast content strategy package. And I was able to sit down and literally document each part of that process in a way that would allow someone brand new to the company to come in and walk a client through. Now, we would never do that. We wouldn't do that to an employee and we would never do that to a client. But the idea is that you don't have to have internalized this process the way I have, the way Sean has. The, the kind of the meat of what we're offering is literally written down on the page so that someone else could step in very quickly and deliver a very high level of service. Now, that might feel like overkill. It, it definitely would have felt like overkill to me five, six, seven years ago. But for me now, it feels like a safety net. And mm. it feels like even if I were the one delivering the session, it would be so great to have that there in front of me. You know, there's so much I carry in my brain all the time to have it on paper in front of me to follow along with. I mean, that's hugely helpful. Well, let me catch you on yeah. something. You say that you're in, you've internalized it, but I certainly have not internalized it. These documents, these processes are absolutely essential for me. 
and I will internalize them. But man, does it free my, I be so much less stress knowing I have all this stuff right in front of me as I go into it. Yeah. And I mean, a huge part of what we're offering is like listening and distilling information and to be able to have, to be able to let go of the process a little bit because it's already there. It's right in front of you allows you to do your job better. Right. Right. So instead of thinking about what's, what's my next question going to be, you're not thinking about the next question. You're listening. Yeah. Because the next question's right there on the page. Right. Um, I think that piece of it is really huge. And again, I don't think that it has to be overwhelming. It's something that, you know, even if you, maybe you're three, four, five years into your business and you're just now starting to think about scale, that's totally fine. But if you start thinking about it in terms of what can I document today so I can do it better tomorrow or so that I can free myself up tomorrow, that's huge. It can happen little bit by little bit by little bit. And my somewhat uninitiated perspective on scale says that if you are running a business on your own, you will eventually run into a limit on what you can do to scale. Absolutely. And it's not, I would say, it's not even necessarily like what your personal capacity is, but it's also what you personally want to spend every single day doing. And you find, you know, if you want to free yourself up for the more creative elements, the parts of your business that are really exciting to you, and not work on the, the the grind, you know, document those things and know how you can pass that off confidently to somebody else. Okay, let's look at the third piece. The third piece is pricing with both labor expenses and revenue targets in mind. So I have a pretty good idea of the revenue that I want to generate with this business and how quickly I want to get to those revenue targets. And so, you know, when I'm pricing services, when I'm looking at what kind of clients we want to serve, I definitely have that in mind. And that's definitely guiding our prices. But I think something that's guiding our prices even more than that is the cost of labor per hour to get the work done that we say that we can do. So whether that's a content strategy session or it's full service podcast production where, you know, soup to nuts, we do it all. Um, when we sat down to talk about like, all right, what, what is our go-to-market pricing? We sat down and actually looked at, okay, audio editing, what is that gonna cost per hour? What are we budgeting for that per hour? Uh, administration, what are we budgeting per that for that per hour? Strategy, what are we budgeting for that per hour? So that regardless of whether we're doing the work or someone else is doing the work, that money is covered in that package. And then of course, we're looking at profit on top of that because I know one of the big mistakes I made at the beginning, um, and one of the big mistakes I see small business owners make all the time is conflating profit with owner labor. Owner labor and profit are not the same thing. (laughs) Um, You should be getting paid profit to own your business. Owning a business is awesome, and you get paid for just owning it, for taking the risk, for putting the capital, whether that's, um, you know, kind of energetic capital, time capital, um, or financial capital for putting that capital into your business, you get, you should be getting a return on that. That's what profit is. Most of us are also getting paid labor. So when it comes to what works, I take a salary. That's my, that's, that pays me for my labor for running and managing the company. And I get a profit distribution from 
the company. That's the money that I make owning the company. That's just, you know, for the value that the company creates and for the skin that I've put in the game, that's my money. For the risks that you take on. Exactly, for the risks that I've taken on. With um, Yellow House Media, we want to look at what's the real cost of labor for every package that we sell and what's the profit on top of that that we want to earn so that ideally this business could run without our labor on the client side. And we'll get to how this business will run without us on any side <laughs> in a little bit. But, but you know what we really want to work toward is running the company and having other people deliver the service. And so from the get-go here, we're budgeting for those things. Now, I will fully and totally admit that because we're in the startup phase, those numbers may not be 100% accurate, right? Like we don't know that the pricing we have, um, we don't know that the pricing that we've set is correct. But at the very least, I know that we've taken the important stuff in mind. One of the things that is heavily on my mind is that, sure, we're in a startup phase, and that means working your butt off, right? Yeah. But I don't want to be working my butt off forever. I am very attracted to the idea of concepts like the four-day work week. Four-hour work week. I said four-day. That's what I meant. All right. There's a, there's a very famous book called The Four-Hour Work Week. I haven't read that book. <laughs> And I'm also very attracted to the people that I employ being in a position where they can only work four days out of the week. Yeah. And so when I'm thinking scale, when I'm thinking long-term goals, I am thinking how much work I actually want to be doing in the long term. And so I think we're in a very luxurious position where we can now make that decision and de design things with that in mind. You know, it's funny that you say that as a, as a luxurious position, and I think that you're right in many ways. Um, but this is one of those places where you really start to see the effects of generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Well, and, tell me more about generational wealth. So generational wealth is can be literally the money that's, you know, uh, passed down from generation to generation. Okay. But there's also an element of gener gener generational wealth that's sort of experiential and knowledge-based. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, um, you know, I've talked to, Meg, talked to Megan Amen here on the podcast about how she grew up in a business-owning household. Mm -hmm. And so that the way that she has approached her business from the get-go has been completely different than mine because she brought with her her father's mindset around money and investment and pricing, I guess mostly money, but no, all sorts of things, labor, ownership. She brought that all with her. I didn't have that. My mother was a business owner, but in the sense that she worked her butt off to earn very, very little, right? Like I didn't, I didn't get to inherit a, a, a true business owner mindset. She was an employee of her home business. Exactly. And so essentially in starting the second company, what we've done is shorten the cycle of generational wealth so that we're building this business based on the wealth uh, of knowledge, certainly some financial capital, um, certainly some like organizational and like network capital that I've developed over the last 10 years. And, yeah, and I think that that's the luxury that I'm speaking yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, it's a privilege it, really. Right. And, and bro, for sure on multiple levels. 
And I would say one of those privileges is we get access to your mistakes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So many mistakes. So many mistakes. <laughs> I talked about some of them already. Okay. <laughs> so let's, uh, this rolls straight into the next piece, which is we're thinking about exit strategy right now. Mm -hmm. And certainly exit strategy was not even a phrase that I knew in 2009 when I started my business. I, I had never heard of exit strategy before. Like I knew Never that, even heard of it. I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, I certainly knew that companies got bought and sold, but I didn't realize that that was like, that you had a strategy for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't realize that that's what people worked for, right? Right. When... Um, when a bunch of tech bros take some venture capital down in Silicon Valley, their goal, literally, from the get-go, is to get someone to buy that company for as much money as possible as quickly as possible. Because that's how they make the most money, and that's how they um, get to go off and then become venture capitalists themselves or angel investors or whatever it is that they want to do with that nice little windfall. Now, that doesn't always work out. And there are all sorts of other exit strategies. There's the exit strategy of like passing a business on to your child, sure, right? Which is incredible. There's also, I wouldn't necessarily call it an exit strategy, but it's certainly a way to exit the day-to-day -day operations of the company, which is simply hiring to replace yourself. Mm -hmm. And not just to replace yourself as the service delivery person, like we've already talked about, um, but hiring to replace yourself as the CEO or the director of operations. And that's something that a lot of people don't think about. And then literally leaving the company other than continuing to own it um, and getting paid that profit distribution, even though you're literally not doing anything for the company now other than continuing to hold that risk. I mean, yeah, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So at that point, you know, you stepped off, you stepped back that far, but the risk is still on you, right? Certainly. Yeah, so you're you know, haven't given up complete responsibility. You still carry a, a large amount of responsibility. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And imagine that's why some people choose not to just step back; they choose to sell. Yes, because when you sell, then you then don't you, have that right, responsibility right. anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's something we'll have to talk about in seven years. Yes, <laughs> something we'll have to talk about in seven years. Yeah, but you know, I don't know exactly what our exit strategy is going to be yet. We certainly have not chosen a particular goal of stepping away versus selling versus passing the company on versus some other thing that I don't know about yet, maybe. Um, but we do know that we will want to exit this company in some way at some point. And the more we can do to set up the finances, the offers, the process documentation now, uh, in a way that makes it makes sense for someone to come in and see the company as a, as an asset, the more we can do that now means the easier it's going to be to walk away when we want to walk away. Yeah. I think where we want to leave at least this portion of the conversation is that just because we're thinking about scale right now doesn't mean we're actually scaling up right now. You are doing the service delivery. I am doing the admin, essentially, a lot of it anyway. I'm doing client communications, um, sort of some client management as well, or account management. Um, and so I just want to make the point that just because we've started this business and just because like we're talking about now that we're starting it with scale in mind, 
it doesn't mean that we've gone out and hired a team of people. It doesn't mean we've gone and made huge investments. We are willing and able to put in the sweat equity right now to figure this stuff out, to document all of it, and to do the work until we have that system down in a way that allows us to bring more people in and allows us to scale up our client capacity as well. I mean, that doesn't mean that we haven't had conversations about how, what that those people look like and even putting together a short list of who those people might be. Absolutely. We are definitely having that conversation and we are making those plans. But no, we're, we're still definitely in the sweat, sweat equity phase. As it is 5.30 on a Friday afternoon before Labor Day. <laughs> and we're going to work every day this weekend. Maybe not every day. So um, I think last but not least, I want to talk about some of the things that we didn't do getting started. Um, and maybe like for you, if you want to think about some of the things that maybe you thought you needed to do to get a business started or some of the things that like you were afraid you might have to do to get a business started. Um, but the first thing I want to mention is that we did not invest a lot of money in a website. How long did it take me to build our website? I'm not sure. It seemed like maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> It was a little longer than you that. You work I think. really fast. Tara. I do work really fast, but I think it was about more like two, three hours. Okay, let's call it that. Yeah. So I built the website on Squarespace. I used one of Squarespace's templates. I customized it not a whole lot. Um, I created our logo on Canva. Yeah, and I guess what you're getting at is that we didn't spend time sweating over details that would slow us down. I mean, like. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I mean, just freaking do it. You know, maybe that this isn't the website we're going to have even next week. But oh, it, don't tempt me. Oh, I know. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, that if we're going to spend all of our time sweating over every little detail, it's going to take a long time for us to get there. Yeah. Our goal from day one was bring clients in the door. Right. We, we can't develop the process. We can't document the process. We can't hire the people we want to hire. Um, and fill the need that we want to fill if we're stuck on a website. I mean, I was ready to go forward without a website, but having not, but having a website makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I totally would have gone forward without a website too, but my people are going to want to know where's the website. <laughs> and it really doesn't take that long to get a good-looking website. No, up. it doesn't. And that's the point that you're making. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I... I think I already said that I, I built it on Squarespace, um, but that was a change for me. Like I knew- Where have you built it before? Always on WordPress mm -hmm. and always, you know, on our own hosting and stuff. And I didn't even want to mess with that this time. I was like, sure, I'll pay someone 20 bucks a month um, to make it really easy for me to get this first website off the ground. And I'm thrilled with it. I think it looks great. Can we take a minor detour? What are your thoughts on- so you could, we could hire somebody else to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. And those people might even just like, we might even pay people to build it on Squarespace. Yeah, sure. You can certainly people do, do that. People do that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your feelings on the, the value of the time spent hiring somebody to, for, for Squarespace, for example, versus investing the time and learning how to do it yourself? Because you're, I mean, again, speaking of luxuries, you took you three, you said it took you three hours to build a website. It would have taken me three days because of our level of his experience. Yeah. Okay. So this could be a whole other podcast episode, mm -hmm. but I will answer 
in the sh- shortest way that I think I possibly can. I'm sure our listeners would like to know, Tara. Yeah, so I am certainly not opposed to people spending really good money on a really good website. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely a time and a place for that. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe even within the next six months, that time and place for us may come. It also may not, um, but it might. What I think, where I think there is immense value in learning the skill yourself is that you don't actually know what you need at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you need three months in. You don't know what you need six months in. You don't know what you need a year in. And the process of learning how to do it yourself is a process of uncovering what you need oftentimes. It's realizing, oh, I, I have to fill out this about page, so I better figure out what this company is about, <laughs> and I better be able to put it in a clear, concise way. You know, I, I don't know um, what's going to really draw people in the door, so I'm going to try a few different headlines out on our homepage over the course of a couple of months. Um, it's, you know, just playing with things and really kind of starting to integrate the brand that you think you want to develop over time. And then like for the skills themselves, whether it's manipulating the Squarespace dashboard or like back in the day when I first learned how to build websites, it was literally learning the basics of HTML and CSS. Um, knowing I have never regretted having those skills. I have only ever been thrilled that when there was a problem with my website, when I wanted to make a change, when I had a great idea and I wanted to put a landing page up really fast that looked decent, I had the skills to do that. That's been a huge benefit to me. Um, And I think that we often overlook those side skills and the value that they bring. It's one of the ways that we are able to capitalize and subsidize our businesses in the, in the early stages and even beyond, you know, um, it, it, it has been important to me at different times that I spend $5,000 on Facebook advertising instead of $5,000 on a website. You know, that's, that's been an important trade that I, I wanted to make. Um, and I've talked to web designers over the years and I've, you know, have toyed with making that, that, uh, investment, but there was always something else I wanted to invest in more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that's always paid off, but I think it's, it's been, it's been good. And for other people, it's different skills, right? I'm not saying I think everyone should learn how to build a website, although I think there's some benefit to that. Um, but I think we need to look at those sort of ancillary skills that we have and say, how can I put this to use in a way that's going to save me time, save me money, and help me learn more about what I'm doing right now. Okay, one other thing off the top of my head that we didn't do, and this one might be controversial. It still might be controversial to me, which is that we didn't set up an email list. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't have one of those. (laughs) Did that just now dawn on you that I didn't set up an email list? Yes. Okay. Um, Maybe we'll talk about that in a yeah, that's an interesting thing because even now, as you say it, I mean, everyone says your list, you know, you hold it to your chest. Yeah. So here's what I did instead. There are copious amounts of contact forms on our website. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the reason I opted for contact forms instead of an email list form is that I really only right now want to talk to the people who want to hire us right now. Okay. Because yeah. those are the people that are going to inform the direction we take this business. Yeah. I don't have the time or energy or even real desire right now to send emails about podcasting to an email list. And sure, am I, you know, am I maybe missing some people who might become clients later on? Sure. Those people know where we're at. <laughs> um, but by having those con that contact form, it does it forces people to say, no, I need this right now, or yes, I want this right now, or even mm. just like I want to talk to these people about whether I need this or not. And having those conversations is more valuable to us right now than having an email list. So you're saying that there are, so someone's coming to our landing page and they've seen that and they've, they could have, we could have had something like subscribe now yeah. and we would have been getting 10 plus, 10 times more people or even more. Potentially. Potentially. Some is, but now we're getting increase, and when people are actually asking, there is this like is this like a self-editing thing where people are uh, self-selecting, self-selecting, interesting. Yeah. So really, the emails we're getting in our inboxes are actually people who are actually interested. Yeah, and so the conversion rate on There's the something contact kind of beautiful form about that. Yeah, so the conversion rate off the contact form is like. I'd have to actually do the math, but I think it's like 90%, yeah. right? Um, of the people who have contacted us, yeah, and right just now, about everyone has speaking purchased. Speaking of capacity and scaling and things, and right now, considering that's about all we can handle yeah. right now. And so we could have done this thing that's like considered to be industry standard, you know, this is what you do, but maybe that would have caused us some problems. Uh, you mean in terms of you think we could have sold more? No, we would have sold more than we were ready for, or we. No, I think we would have sold way less. Sorry for bringing this conversation in that direction. No, that's fine. I no, I can I legitimately say that if we had if we replaced um, most of the contact forms with subscribe to our email list forms, uh -huh. we would have sold less to this point. Really? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, you are giving people the option of taking it slow. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, and like thinking about it. Whereas, right, it's not, because here's the thing. This podcast production thing, I know people need it. You know people need it. The thing is, people know they need it. And so when someone hops on our, uh, our website and mm -hmm. they read an article that we've written and then they click on the services page and they're like, holy crap, that's exactly what I need. I don't want them to second guess that and sign up for our email list and come back to that, to right. that later. I want them to say, holy crap, I need this, which is actually what the uh, submissions say, right? Or what the inquiries say. They say, holy crap, I need this. And we're like, great, how's next week? Or how's the week after? We, we can do this like right now. And I think there's something really powerful about that. One of the things I love about this process, the way that we've established it, is that there are people who are coming to our landing site or to to our landing page, and they're saying, and they're not filling it out, and they're sitting back and they're thinking about it. But we don't. When they come to us, they're ready for us. Oh, that's such a good point that we're not worried about all the people who are signing up for our list and not buying. Right, because we don't even know that they're there. So I mean, we smart. don't even know who they're that they're, who they are. There are probably a lot of people who are currently at this very moment 
thinking about it, but they're not in our system. They're not, we're not processing that. Yes. That's such a good point. People worry about that so much. I had not even considered that. I know. So like if you get like an, you get a, uh, um, active membership list or you get a subscriber list and I'm not exactly sure how you should follow the activity of somebody who is subscribed to your newsletter. Yeah. I can literally see everything they do or don't do. Whether or not they open it up and read it. I mean, that's got to drive someone crazy to know you have 500 people who subscribe to your email and five of them buy or even open it. <laughs> well, more people than that. That must just like it. drive you crazy. <laughs> it doesn't drive me crazy anymore, but it certainly drives me I'm sure there are people who, for whom that keeps them up at night. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it just kind so, of like brings those people into your world who are ready to interact with you. And you, you, it's not that we don't worry about those people who are who haven't made the decision yet. It's that we don't have to yet. There is often an assumption that there's a really long buying cycle on these things, right? And I think a lot of times when you're talking about a service that costs, you know, $850, $1,200, $1,500, even $2,000 a month, which is what we're talking about with podcast production, the assumption is that it's going to take people months to make a decision about that. And my bet from when we, from the moment we put the website up was that it is not going to take people months. It, people are going to land on this and say, yes, that's what I've been looking for. Um, and so the other thing that's happening with having a contact form up instead of an email list form is that we are getting to take advantage of that really short buying cycle where someone can see it, say, yes, I need that. Say, tell me where to sign. <laughs> We're take all my money, which has also been said to us several times. Um, and, you know, I think if we were really focused on building an email list, building out an autoresponder, even just thinking in terms of like, what's the sales funnel for this? Um, we might assume that the sales cycle is longer than it actually is. When in reality, at least for now, the sales cycle can be really, really short. It can be an email, a phone consultation, a proposal, done. Okay, so let's just go back over, um, I think, the important points that we've talked about, because I know we've been kind of all over the place, but hopefully that was interesting and helpful. Um, so first off, uh, in order to scale this business from the get-go, we are doing everything today, knowing that we're going to have to do it again tomorrow, uh, and that we want to do it more quickly and more efficiently and more effectively tomorrow. So that means documenting everything, making sure there's a process for everything, um, and just saving everything all in one place. Uh, the second thing that we're doing is planning for the people that we're going to hire eventually to help us grow our capacity beyond you know, the capacity that the two of us have. Third, we're pricing with both labor expenses and revenue targets in mind so that we're building the business that we want to have. At the same time, we're building in the payroll that we want to have to support that business. Fourth, we're thinking about exit strategy and all the different ways that that could go down. And then finally, we're making sure to remember that just because we're thinking about scale right now and building for scale right now doesn't mean we have to scale right now. I do want to end with this. Sure. So I am a, uh, I'm an extrovert who works from home. I love podcasts. And if you want to talk podcasts with me and your podcast, let me know. All right. That does it for this candid conversation about scaling up a business from the get-go. If you want to find out more about what Sean and I are doing with Yellow House Media, go to yellowhouse.media. What Works is a production of 
Yellow House Media. This episode was edited by me and Sean McMillan because we decided to share this with you at the last minute. Stay tuned for more conversations about scaling up a small business or check out our library of candid conversations with small business owners at explorewhatworks.com.